Welcome to another edition of Henry Conversations. I'm your host, Micah Watson, and I have the privilege of directing the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University. My conversation partner today is Dr. Josh Packard. Josh is the executive director of Springtime Research Institute, which recently published a book we'll be talking about, The State of Religion and Young People, Relational Authority. He has spent some time in Texas, where he did his undergraduate degree at Texas Lutheran, not far from San Antonio, if I'm not mistaken. He holds a doctorate in sociology from Vanderbilt University. He's published in a number of venues and is a podcast veteran, having appeared on the Holy Post podcast, First Things, and others. He's now hosting the Voices of Young People podcast. Josh, I'm glad you've joined us at Calvin today for a Henry Conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's really great to be here. So tell us a little bit about you, about, about who you are, where you're from. How did you get to Springtide? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about what Springtide Research Institute's all about. Yeah, sure. I've been, as you mentioned in the, in the very lovely intro, I've got a PhD in sociology from Vanderbilt. And even from my days at Texas Lutheran University, although I was an English major as an undergrad, so shout out to all the English majors out there. Yes. Um, you can add one more thing to the list when your parents ask you uh, what you're going to do, if there are any students listening. <laughs> uh, I've always been interested in religion. I was a campus ministry assistant in, uh, in my undergrad years and then took that into more of an academic study into my postgrad work. The part of it that sort of like leads into Springtide is that I've never been particularly interested in talking to other academics. And I don't mean that as a slam to other academics. It's just not where my skill set is. From the earliest days, I felt like there was just a lot of really good work in the academy that just wasn't ever making its way out into the world. No offense taken. Yeah, <laughs> I just sort of felt like that might be like my thing to do in this world. And I was fortunate enough to uh, have landed at the University of Northern Colorado, where I'm finishing up my last semester. And it's an applied sociology program so that, you know, I, I was able to write church refugees and do some um, work that translated academic research again out into the hands of people who could actually do something with it. And then from there, it, it sort of, as I was in conversation with people thinking about what the church and religion writ broadly, I mean, not just Christianity, but, you know, religion across the country needed, there was this recognition that, that translating work needed to be done, but also new kinds of questions needed to be asked as the reality of young people's lives, especially were changing in terms of their relationship with institutional church. And that's where Springtide comes in. And I was honored to be asked to come on board as the uh, inaugural executive director. We've been around for about a year and a half now and put out several studies already. And, and that's where Springtide sits. We really rest right on the shoulders of trying to bring really good social science to people who are trying to make a difference in the lives of young folks, especially in their religious lives. The, the way we say it is that we try to help those who care about young people to care better. Yeah, and I have I have here a hard copy of your latest publication, um, as I mentioned before, the, the state of religion and young people. And you guys, I mean, for I'm surprised for a year and a half you've been busy. Um, you guys have put out <laughs> yes, a we have. Of studies, and that's that's great. So, tell us a little bit about. What led to this particular study? What inspired you guys to to put it together? And what are some of the the key findings? Um, and we'll talk more about that as we get into it. And then you know, just so people can know, where I, I obviously have a hard copy, but it yeah. seems like there's even um, easier ways to get it. Um, so why don't you tell folks how they can how they can access access the study and where it came from and what it's all about? You bet. We were really fortunate in these first couple of years to have been supported by. Um, a fairly sizable grant. So that means you can get the hard copy on Amazon for just $10. I mean, it's just at cost, essentially, of printing and shipping. 
And you can get the digital version for free on our website or on Apple Books. And the cool thing about the digital version is that we took all of the assets that we made throughout the year for the variety of different things that we were doing, and we linked to them right there. So if you're on the Apple Books version, it'll pop. You want to click on a video to watch me have a conversation with somebody from the Institute for Youth Ministry um, at Princeton Theological Seminary. You can it'll pop up right there, and or you can see that conversation. Same thing with the data on our key findings section. You can you can interact with the data. You can cut it in different ways and look at different breakdowns. And we strongly encourage people to get that. It's the state of religion and young people is our flagship product. I mean, that was sort of the idea that birthed Springtide really was that we kind of felt like all the attempts to understand what was going on with young people's religious lives were coming from fairly narrow lenses or, or, or positions rather. I mean, they were coming sometimes even just one congregation uh, and certainly almost always through a denomination or one faith expression. And the data keep telling us this story from, you know, from Pew and Gallup and the general social survey and social scientists. Like we keep getting this data that says that young people's religious lives are increasingly being lived outside of institutional expressions, but all of the sort of like equipping data was coming from places that weren't really taking that kind of a lens. And so that's, at Springtide, we we characterize it pretty succinctly as saying that we exist at the intersection of young people's religious and daily lives. And sometimes that, you know, when we go to do our data collection, which is over 15,000 surveys now and, and a, nearly 200 interviews in the last year and a half, it takes us to some strange places. I mean, sometimes we're talking to, to young people who have never set foot in any kind of a religious setting. You know, not a church, not a mosque, not a synagogue, not a Bible study. And increasingly, we're talking to young people in that way. And then sometimes we're talking to really devout Catholics. You know, we're talking to people who are raised in Orthodox Jewish households. Our goal is to really, wherever young people are asking meaningful questions, we want to show up in that space virtually right now during the pandemic and, and understand how they're navigating those spaces. Who are they relying on? What are the sorts of people that are there for them and questions they're asking? That takes us to the State of Religion Young People 2020 and every year after that. Okay. Yeah, I... I'm normally pretty curmudgeonly on on wanting an actual physical book. And <laughs> yeah. the book that you guys did put together is beautiful. I mean, it's got Thank you. read visually and it's streamlined well. But I found myself wishing I, I'd like to click on that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm in the strange business where I actually think I could recommend, I mean, get the book too, the hard book, but the, yeah. the, the, the virtual version is going to be a great resource. Um, I also, as you were talking, I was thinking it sounds a little bit like trying to understand the data on young people in religion there's a parallel there with political polls and, and some of these old ways of polling where you're just relying on landlines, mm -hmm. right, for, for polling. And that's not going to, you know, that hasn't worked for some time. And it's, would you say that's a fair parallel that trying to get the, the read on young people and religion just can't rely on those old methods anymore? I do think that that's true. I mean, in part, but, but look, you know, I, I think that the real value there is not just in the sense that like we're bringing so much data to the table. There's lots of data out in the world, but it's in that perspective that you mentioned of like, we need a new way to understand what's going on because the world has changed. And at Springtide, we're a sociological research institute. So we're taking this broad picture and looking at the ways that religion intersects with other structures. And I think the best analogy I've been able to come up with so far is that the way that we've been thinking about religious lives, especially of young folks, is that they are individual decisions. And that is true, but it is not the whole story. It's a bit like trying to understand baseball by just watching a pitcher, hmm. right? Like 
if you just watched the pitcher, you would think it was a game of target practice. <laughs> right. So it's not, <laughs> it's not that you would get an incomplete picture, although that's part of it. You would get a fundamentally wrong picture if you think that the entirety of a young person's religious decision-making comes down to like what they're thinking and feeling. The context, the social world that they're embedded in matters a lot. And that's what informs, that's the rest of the baseball field, the rest of the players. And that's, a, that's the perspective that we're trying to bring here. Yeah. Well, something that's been a common theme, I, I'm new to podcasting, but done a few of these. And, and one of the things that we have um, talked about on Henry Conversations is just the state of our culture right now, politically, culturally, religiously, all these different ways of understanding things that matter to people. And, and we do seem to be in something of an epistemic crisis. And yeah. what I mean by that is I mean, people have always disagreed. And, and that's American tradition, we go back quite a ways where, you know, <laughs> yep. I, I tell some students who ask, you know, has it always been this bad that as a recent play portrays, it wasn't too long into the American political experiment that a sitting vice president shot and killed the first treasury secretary. So we've always disagreed, right? But it, it does seem like we're in this season of particularly sharp disagreement with regards to what counts as a trustworthy source, right? How do we know what's true? And people just have a befuddlement with their neighbors and even people in their family. How can you believe that? So one of the things that you know struck me, I'm in a social science department, political science, so mm -hmm. not sociology, but a kind of a cousin. Oh yeah. Um, what to put on your sociologist hat, and what does social science bring to the table for trying to help us understand what's true and how to understand data and, and these truth claims? One of the things I was impressed with your study is pretty robust quantitative set of, of people that you're looking at. I think over 10,000 yeah. responses for this. And then also that qualitative. Um, so for people who may not know quantitative, qualitative, and social science, um, I know that's a lot I just threw at you, but how would you, <laughs> I guess, articulate what social science brings and what you guys have done in particular to helping us understand what's true and what's not and where people are at today? Yeah, well, I mean, without getting too far into the statistical weeds, obviously, the more data you collect, the higher your confidence is in terms of what you're predicting or talking about. That's a big part. We, we make sure all of our studies are nationally representative, weighted for census categories on age and gender and region, and then we control for and, and map to race on the back end. That's what the 10,000, I mean, 10,000 is a nice number, but it also gives us the ability to make sure that that we're having enough people in each category to be able to make reliable claims about their behaviors and attitudes, because everything comes with a certain margin of error. But this question that you ask, that you bring up about the, how can we know what's true anymore? And there's so, you know, so much debate about that. On the data side of it, it's always best if you're you're working from what other people have, have found. You're also bringing to the table this quantitative survey data, but then at Springtide too, we're adding in this qualitative element of the interviews, and so it keeps us from just having to make assumptions about the interpretation about. So you know, if we have this answer to a question, like for example, 52% of young people who are religiously affiliated say that they don't trust religious institutions. Well, we can make guesses about why that might be, but it's so much better to do the hard work of doing the interviews, which getting young people on the phone for 30 minutes to talk about things is sometimes hard work. Um, that's worth it because we get a much better and more accurate sense of what that dynamic actually looks like in their real lives. So if I put on my skeptics hat a little bit, sure. so I'm a political theorist, political philosopher, and we tend to um, poke holes or at least try to make trouble for, for our more yeah. quantitative and qualitative colleagues. Um, you know, there's this quotation, I, it may be apocryphal from, from Mark Twain that there's lies, damned lies and statistics. So, you know, one question 
just to help us understand how these claims can be made, we, we think about claims made about today's generation that it's particularly complex or more troubled or more complicated in terms of their lives. And so I guess one question is, how do we compare that not only to other generations today, um, I think about people contemplating their retirement, mm-hmm. and that strikes me as they're facing some unprecedented things and pretty complicated, or or previous generations. Like, do we have a sense of how young people would have answered some of these questions during the 60s or during Vietnam War, during World mm-hmm. War II? You know, I guess that's that framing question. Yep. And we think about how do we how do we understand the claims we make about today's generation vis-a-vis other control groups, I guess. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a, it's a really important question that you're asking. And even though we've only been around for a year and a half, collecting data for two years or so, we rely on a lot of the standard questions that other places have been asking so that we can do that kind of mapping back. So when we make a claim, for example, that Gen Z, 13 to 25 year olds right now, are the loneliest generation that has ever existed in this country, that's us relying on the standard scale of loneliness from UCLA that's been around since the late 70s. And it's us building on work that was done by social scientists for the last 30, 40 years, and especially the Cigna study that came out a couple of years ago. And we do that too with religious belief and behavior. The biggest thing that sort of characterizes this generation is both, one thing is sort of new, and the other is the continuation of a trend. And the first thing that's new, when we talk about them being complex, I think we can be more specific than that. Their lives are not necessarily more complex than other people's lives. Everybody's lives were complex for that era. But Gen Z is demonstrably the most diverse generation that this country has ever seen. And that is really critical to understand. So we can't just talk about big bucket categories of young people anymore because that doesn't make any sense. I mean, even affiliated and unaffiliated for religious purposes, those, all the people in those categories don't act the same. And increasingly, they act less the same than they do similarly. Even just to think about it through the lens of socioeconomic status and affiliation, we saw vast differences. So that's one thing. The continuation of the trend is the loss of trust in institutions. So this has been going on since the 1970s. We've got pretty good data here from Gallup um, and Pew and others, and we don't see any signs of that slowing down. And it's not just loss of trust in religious institutions, and we document this in the state of religion and young people, it's a loss of trust in all institutions. So it's not that religious people have done something wrong, it's that there's something going on in the world, in our, so, in our sort of social settings that calls for us to pivot, uh, I think, if we're really going to continue to be effective in these various settings. And you've seen big financial institutions make these pivots. You've seen Walmart is the biggest purveyor of organic food right now. So the industrial food chain has already made this. Churches haven't been quite as quick, um, you know, a little bit behind to make that shift, but they will and it's coming. But And it's certainly necessary, but it's not their fault. You know, part of the reason why I think that's so important to understand is because if you didn't cause it, you can't fix it, but you can respond to it. You can adjust and you can, you can alter what you're doing. So one question that struck me as I was thinking about what to talk to you about, and but I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about whether the changing of the institution of the family since the 1960s and 70s might have played a role in some of the, sure. or at least have you guys thought about that aspect of in terms of young people being a little less grounded, maybe. I don't know how to quite how to ask it, but where does that question take? Well, no doubt family dynamics and family structures have changed. And I think the religious institutions have been relatively slow to respond to that, especially in the ways that it's been positive. Uh, I think even about even about my own grandparents, you know, a lot of those marriages that people were in weren't great marriages. And so getting literally getting to be divorced was a really positive thing, but that does have ramifications. The other part of 
the family dynamic that I think goes unspoken way too much is that real wages for the working class in this country haven't moved much since the late 1970s, early 1980s. And so when that happens, people are forced out of the house to do more work for wages, and that leaves less time at home to do things. There was a study that I did a few years ago as a follow-up to a book that I'd written for church refugees, and it asked what people were doing instead of going to church. And the most common answer, our second most common answer was, we're trying to have family time because we're two parents or you know one parent or whatever working all week. And like Sunday morning is the one time that we all get to be together. And I just thought to myself like, oh, it's really, it's really hard to, to think that somebody's doing the wrong thing. You know, maybe you would rather them be at church, but also it's not like they're, they didn't tell us like, oh yeah, we're staying home on Sunday morning so we can all do drugs together or something like <laughs> it was just, it was the right. one time of the week that they had together. And I think when we ignore the financial and economic realities of families and just try to blame parents for not taking their kids to church anymore, that ignores a lot of the sort of structural conditions that exist and are very real and salient to people in this world. Uh, yeah, no, thank I appreciate your thoughts on that. One of the things that always strikes me is it's always more, there's more factors in it than, than one might think. Right. It's not just the families, not just the economics, um, all these things. And then technology too, I'm sure has a huge role to play. One of the questions I get quite a bit, and we hear quite a bit about, is this question about young people becoming less religious, more secular. Um, and we have the rise of the nuns, and of course, then you always you make the joke: we're not talking about the Catholic right. nuns. We're talking about people who, who, when asked about what religion they affiliate with, they they answer none; that they they don't choose a side or a team, or have not grown up that way. Um, and you guys have a really interesting way of thinking about religion and what it means to be religious. So I'm wondering if you could. You give me your thoughts on that question. Are people becoming, are young people less religious than previous generations? And then how do you approach that in trying to reach young people and, and get where they're at and what they're thinking about religion, I guess, traditionally understood, and then religion in a more broad way that, that Springtide might refer sure. to? Sure. Well, let's be really clear about what the science says. I mean, that what you pointed out is true, but with one caveat, young people and people in general have become less institutionally religious over the last, say, 20 or 30 years. And that institutionally religious part, that's an important qualifier. We adopted those terms of affiliated and disaffiliated or none as a way to sort of, they're, they're like proxies. It was this way of saying that like, oh, if somebody isn't affiliated, if they're a nun, we can assume reasonably some things about who they are. But we know that that's not really, I mean, the extent of religiosity in a person's life isn't whether they check a box that says that they're Christian, Protestant, Christian, Catholic, Buddhist, Jewish, etc. It encompasses beliefs and behaviors and, and a whole host of other things. So when we break it down to those components, we find not only a lot more activity, but also we start to see that those categories, the utility of those categories is completely breaking apart, especially at younger ages. That's the issue that we try and take up at the beginning of State of Religion Young People 2020, just to show the diversity there. Because a young person shows up to church or mosque or synagogue, we can't anymore reasonably assume a bunch of things about them. And just because a young person isn't engaged with an institutional religion, we similarly can't assume a whole lot of things about them. In fact, we see high levels of distrust, as I already mentioned, among people who are affiliated. We also see a relatively high levels of unaffiliated young people saying that they try to live out their religious values in their daily lives which is really sort of astonishing, right? The, the take home for me, what I keep coming back to when I think about it and talk about it is that 
it really is an expansion of the playing field for religious leaders. Maybe 15 or 20 years ago when those categories still held water, I think you would have been reasonable to look at the unaffiliated population and say, well, okay, they don't want anything to do with me. They're not interested in what I have to say. It's probably, you know, not that anybody is or isn't worth it, but that's probably not where I'm going to make my greatest gains. But I think today, when we dig down into the data, what we see is that young people, by and large, are very interested in that conversation because they are, whether they check the boxes affiliated or unaffiliated, many of them are asking the same kinds of questions. They're struggling with the same kinds of issues. And what they really want are trusted adult guides to come alongside them and help them navigate those things. Religious leaders are perfectly positioned to do that kind of work. But we have to come at it from a, maybe a little bit of a different way than what than what we might have been able to do in the 80s and 90s, for example. Because they're not going to show up to youth group or Sunday morning necessarily. Yeah, right? I mean, I think that that's the one yeah. thing that's clear. Like they're open. It's an expansion of the playing field. They're open to the conversation. They're just not walking into your building to do it. Now, the great thing there is that if you can get really clear about what things are your core values and beliefs that you're not going to compromise on, um, your teachings, your scripture, and what things are modes of delivery, then that leaves you a lot of room to compromise, adjust, change, innovate on the modes of delivery. So like, there's nothing that I know of in any scripture that talks about pizza parties as being like mandatory for getting young people uh, to have a closer relationship with the divine. So we can probably compromise on that. Right. And to their credit, I think, you know, young people were pretty uniformly not asking for religious leaders to compromise on the other things, the values, the religious teachings. That does not mean they're always going to agree with them. But what they wanted were authentic relationships with adults who represented those positions so they could sort of assess and make sense out of them for themselves. And so I think that that's a, that, that was a critical part of me. I, we went into this maybe with a hypothesis that young people were just going to want adults to affirm everything that the young person already wanted to do, but that was not the case. You know, that's encouraging. Um, you know, in a prior season of life, I was very involved in youth ministry and saw that as a path that I might go down into. And I remember a saying that was around at that time, and it's cliche, or maybe, but it, I, I think actually you have the research to back this up. And the saying was, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you yep. care, right? Which sounds like one of these little um, bumper sticker things, but it seems like your data actually shows there's something to that. Um, I wonder if you would may talk a little bit about what relational authority means, this cluster of practices or virtues that you suggest that religious leaders would do well to incorporate. I think of mm -hmm. listening, transparency, integrity, care, and then expertise yep. as well is one of those. But I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what your data showed with what young people have said about, it's great that they don't just want to be affirmed in everything they happen to believe, right? Um, but that there are some approaches and some postures that are more fruitful than others. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct. And I wouldn't call that a cliche. I would call it an adage because I think you're right. It's 100% true. That's the difference of, about how accurate it is, whether it's a cliche or an adage, right? They won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and that was, we were struggling to fit these pieces together to sort of square this circle. And because on the one hand, like I said, we went into this with sort of a, maybe a working hypothesis based on, maybe some faulty assumptions that young people were going to be rejecting expertise. Um, I, I felt like I had seen that even as my time as a professor, that young people were more challenging of me in the classroom than I would have been of my professors. And so we kept sort of expecting to find that. And when we really stepped back and took a look at all the data together, what emerged was this picture of all of those things working in concert. That if you just lead with expertise, 
and that's the only thing you're bringing to the table that you're right. They will not listen. They, in fact, they assume that your expertise is there to serve you or the institution that you work for. And as we already mentioned, they're really distrustful of those institutions. And so if all you're coming at them with is expertise, they're going to shut it down immediately. On the other hand, they were really clear that they did not want adults to just be their friends and like hang out with them, mm. uh, which was really great for me to hear because I was like, you know, they would tell us stuff like, I have plenty of friends. My friends cause me lots of drama. I don't need more friends. And that's not true for every kid. That was just some of the things that we would hear. And so we started digging into that. And that's where the listening and the transparency and the other dimensions came in. And that's one of the things I really like about this is that it's this model of authority that is rooted in sort of the sociological evolution of where the locus of authority is. You know, it used to be in the tribe and in the individual with the most, you know, tradition. And then it moved to these hierarchical positions with people who have titles. And now it seems to be evolving into this relationship base. And I think in part to combat the mistrust that we have for these institutions, we have to combine those things. So what does that look like practically? Well, practically, it means that if you're doing campus ministry, for example, and you want to have a large event with a stage where you stand up and tell people the way it is and hope that they're going to come over because you're going to make such a compelling argument um, or give such a compelling sermon or homily, that's not going to happen. Increasingly, that's going to be less effective. Functionally, what we need to be doing is out in the world, creating relationships in this way that combines these five dimensions. If what we're really after is having some long-term durable impact in the life of a young person in their spiritual lives. Yeah, I guess in some ways, I, I'm thinking about if we switch venues from, from the church or from religious organizations to, and I'll just speak personally, like the Christian college mm-hmm. or university, um, it is a religious institution, but unlike youth group, I do have students coming in um, voluntarily which is helpful. And I'm thinking about one of the findings you had in this recent report, which found roughly two thirds of young people feel like adults are dismissive of their, of their Mm. political views or what they might bring to the table and talking about politics. And it seems like, you know, again, politics are always in the air, but it seems like even more so uh, in this Mm -hmm. recent season. And as a political science professor, I'm keenly interested in that question, um, particularly with regard to how I can and how my colleagues, uh, how we can, we do rely on our expertise. And in a sense, students wouldn't, shouldn't be in the classroom if we didn't have something mm-hmm. to offer, right? That's what you would think. <laughs> yeah, you, at least that's the hope, right? I, I hope given what they're paying in tuition and the time they're spending that we can help them out. But I guess I, I'm curious as to what counsel you might have yourself having been in the academy and, and also having expertise with this data and reaching young people. What might you say to myself, to colleagues who might be listening or other folks I'm guessing if you're listening to um, a podcast with the Henry Institute at Calvin, you might have some connection with higher education. Um, what might we think about if you know, there are certain things that come out of your research for, for churches and religious leaders across the board? If we were to think about that in particular for yeah. faculty, what thoughts do you have on, on how your findings might impact how we do our jobs? Well, in a very broad sense, I mean, I, I don't want to be too overly generalizing about this, but I would say that they, the students don't really care what you know as much as they care about how you can help them grow. So all the knowledge that you might have isn't super relevant to them unless it's the thing that's going to help them or, or until it's the thing that's going to help them expand their own minds and their own thoughts and their own, like, you know, systematize their own thinking. I think sometimes as faculty, uh, especially, you know, at the majority of the institutions that exist in this country where that train, you know, postgraduates, they, we get trained in this way to become future faculty members that isn't particularly focused on actually 
interacting with undergrads in the future. <laughs> you know, we get trained in this really academic way of thinking and talking to one another. A lot of that is about demonstrating your expertise and what all, you know, all the things you've thought about and all the conclusions you've come to. But most of us end up in jobs like the one that I'm transitioning out of right now and I've had for the last 10 or 15 years and, and the one that Calvin, which is where we do a lot of interaction with under, like our primary job is to help undergraduates figure out what they know and think and believe and feel and how to defend it and support it and all those kinds of things. So it does require us, I think, a little bit of a shift from this expertise driven model to this relational authority kind of model where I think it's important that we create those connections, that we are a little bit more transparent, that we make those personal kind of connections to our own lives when we were students. And that stuff, I, I found it personally, you know, when I started thinking about this model that the data were coming at us through the lens of my own life, I can remember like the most effective connections I've been able to make with students have been when I've been able to disclose things about my personal life that, you know, were parallel to theirs. And then we get into the like, how can sociology help you to think through that in a different way? You know, what kind of jobs can you get as a soci? I mean, I'll tell you one of the things that I've been like most stunned by is you have students walk into your office, right? And you ask for advising or whatever, which at my university, big state secular school, advising is mostly schedule making. It's, you know, can they get their pin number to register and what classes should they take? But I've always been more interested in the like, what do you want to be when you grow up questions? So I make them answer it before I'll give it like hold their, you know, pin number ransom. Um, so they have to tell me and they don't, they don't answer me on the first try. And when I say like, what do you want to do when you graduate? What, you know, what's the, what's going to happen in the first two or three years? And they'll give me some like basic answer, but it's when I ask the follow-up question or, or the second follow-up question that they actually will sit down and consider it. And it wasn't until doing this research at Springtide that I began to understand why that is. And what we heard time and again from young people was the predominant experience that they have with adults in their lives is of being ignored and dismissed. So they don't believe you. Mm. When you ask them a question like that, they think you're being glib or their first instinct is to think that you're just doing what you have to do because it's like in the script of your job or whatever. So it requires you to, I think it requires us to be the adult in the room to overcome that barrier and, and really dig in and be like, no, I want to know. Like if you graduated tomorrow, what would you want to do? And to sit in the uncomfortable silences that can sometimes emerge because that's actually where the relationships get built. So it signals that you actually do care, yeah. right? They, they, yeah. Which, which I think we think they assume, right? I think we think they assume that we care because we genuinely do care. I mean, we're doing focus groups with religious leaders too across the country. And that's one of the gaps that we keep hearing is religious leaders telling us all the time, like, I, I really want to connect and care. I, you know, I want the best for these young people in my life, but it's like, they don't believe me. And I think that's true. They don't automatically believe me. Yeah, I guess. So I'm thinking back to what you said about they don't want us to be their friends either. And so it seems like we're, you know, if I draw from my own kind of, I don't mean to go into the expertise thing, but I'm thinking of Aristotle's mm -hmm. mean, right? And I might have done this myself. You can have professors who overshare yeah. uh, too much information or, or try to be too chummy. And we're not their age. We shouldn't try and I, I actually joke about using some terms that kids use these days, but I use them in horribly <laughs> bad ways in a sort of dad joke sort of way. Um, but it seems like what you're saying, or you can tell me if this is right, that there's got to be this in between. We don't want to overdo it. We're not like them. We do have some expertise to bring to the table to help them find meaning. Um, but we also aren't these, you know, ivory tower folks who are dispelling knowledge and they're just fortunate to be <laughs> yeah, in, our in presence. The, there's got to be something in between there where we can. In the atmosphere. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and coming at it, at a, at a Christian context as well, in those advising meetings, or even in things like plagiarism or the, the tougher things, I think for me, it's been good to be able to say, there's a Christian brother and sister aspect of this as well, that's part of the ethos. 
which I've appreciated. I've been in both a secular and a, and a, a religious context, and, and you definitely have to mm-hmm. adjust depending on which one you're in, but I found that to be re- really helpful. Um, well, one of the um, things that people have said about our current moment, and I think that there's other social science data to back this up, is just the, the increase in polarization. If we think about that in terms of political parties, uh, when you and I were growing up, there were such things as more conservative Democrats yeah. and there were progressive Republicans. And and now that's really pretty tough to find. So both in terms of the political parties and I think in terms of the people who support those parties, there's been an increase of polarization. Um, and, you know, there's this, I think it's the New York Times columnist Ross Douthat who said something, if you don't like the religious right, wait until you get a hold of the post-religious <laughs> right. Um, in other words, the idea that people's passions and their commitments don't go away as we become more secular. They get perhaps yeah. transferred to other identities. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what you think about that, and particularly given how broadly Springtide understands yeah. religion, that it's about things that are important to us and broad. Um, might it be that there's a connection between our becoming less religious overall and an increase in political polarization? Now, before I let you answer that, I, sh- I should give a caveat. That's not to say that in previously more religious times or less diverse times that things were all hunky-dory and that we got, there's not a golden age sort of question. Um, But I wonder if there is, at least in politics, if if people become less religious in the traditional sense, if political identity and political tribe can uh, substitute for some of that. Yeah, that is actually the one thing as parent, as citizen, as sociologist that keeps me sort of awake at night is like, I don't get too worried about the number of people sitting in pews on a Friday night or a Sunday morning, but I get really concerned about people growing up without the language or the sort of vocabulary in the biggest sense to explore and explain life's most important questions. Because my fear is that that then gets reduced, and I mean reduced, down into these categories about politics or issues or causes, which are all important, but they are not the same thing as contemplating the role of the divine in your life. And religious leaders are are exactly the kind of guides that we need. Like religious leaders are essentially professional sense makers. And so we think about, you know, what has happened during the pandemic? Well, we don't know what has happened during the pandemic. We need professional sense makers to help us understand that, young people especially. And I get concerned about that, about the sort of retreating of religious professionals back to their tiny little spaces of their congregations and their denominations, you know, whatever their stance is on a particular political bill that's coming through and not engaging in this really big level sense-making work. And if I were able to decree things, it would be a rushing back into the public square of people who understood how to make sense of the world. And not because they want to advance necessarily the idea that they think is right, but so they can help other people to make sense out of the world. Right. Otherwise, I think you're right. Like we just get funneled into these tribes, into these very polarized groups and categories. And I think we even see some of that in the data that we're, we're finding and what we'll be writing about in the state of religion in people 2021 as we're in the last round of data collection for that coming up soon. So we've already seen some of the early analysis is this notion that unlike their millennial parents or Gen X parents, Gen Z is not really interested in tearing things down and deconstructing them. I mean, they've got all the pieces that have been blown up from their parents and laying around them and they're trying to figure out how to construct them and build them back. But without those kind of guides in their lives, somebody's going to be there to help them do it. And the question is who? Right. 
Well, I, I mean, as you were saying that, one way to think about what Springtide's doing is helping to equip people to step into that. That's what we, we would love to be, be right? seen as being a part of that solution from a variety of different angles. And so even the concept of relational authority, which I know we're writing about in that book in, in a religious context, I think it very much has implications for people running after school programs and nonprofits and, you know, boys and girls clubs and things like that. Well, Springtide, as you mentioned, has been going for about a year and a half and has put out several studies. Uh, you just mentioned that you're in the end stages of more data that for another study. Tell me a little bit about what's coming up next. I think you have something on work and meaning in mm-hmm. young people. And as a professor who is often doing counseling or, or advising on what am I going to do after college, I'm keenly interested in this. So would you tell us a little bit about what's up next for your research? Yeah. So that book that you mentioned is called Work Life. Uh, it'll be out in May, right around the time of graduations. The first half is sort of written towards employers to help them understand how, like, why Gen Z is so different in the workforce and what what does it mean to have a meaningful job and a career and why do they care about that so much more? And then the second half is written to counselors, advisors, parents, trusted adults in the lives of young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do. And the idea is that, of course, like both sets of people will be interested in reading, I think, at least pieces of each half. But the idea is that like, how do you, if work is increasingly the place where young people make meaning in their lives, partially for structural reasons. We just have to work more hours. And so that has to take on that role. And partially out of agency and choice reasons that there just are more kinds of jobs available now in different fields that young people are turning to and maybe to fill in for the loss of institutional religion. Regardless, that's where we see a lot of that meaning making work happening in the lives of young people. How can we make that as productive as possible? That's the focus of that. But in between that and the state of religion and young people 2021, which will come out in the fall, We have the new normal coming out, which is a how-to guide for helping religious leaders, parents transition their young people back into post-pandemic life. How do we mourn the things that were just lost? Like, I think a lot of adults are interested in getting back to normal, but like I have a 10-year-old and he's not going back to normal. He's going into middle school, right? Like he just just lost fifth grade. It's not like it's, there will be nothing the same about the fall. Proms were just lost, graduations lost, job prospects lost. So I think that's really important. And so in that new normal guide, we're going to try and give some practical tips about how to help young people make that transition. And that'll be out in about a month. Well, that sounds, couldn't be any more timely. Um, Sounds great. Josh, I just want to say thank you for joining us for this Henry conversation. It's been a pleasure having you on. And I think that I've learned a lot and I would hope people listening to this will check out Springtide Research Institute, both what you've already done and what's coming out soon. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Our website is springtideresearch.org. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Josh Packard. We'd be happy to hear from you. My guest today has been Dr. Josh Packard of Springtide Research Institute. Thanks for joining us for this Henry conversation. Thanks also to Sam Tuitt, Calvin Sr., and sound engineer par excellence. Josh and I have had this conversation on March 3rd, 2021. I encourage you also to check out the Springtide Research Institute's work, particularly this recent report on religion and young people, as well as their Voices of Young People podcast. Keep an eye out for their upcoming report on young people in the search for meaning at work, as well as returning to normal after the pandemic. You've been listening to another Henry conversation Paul B. Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University. We hope you'll join us soon for another Henry Conversation.